Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined by two people who also care a lot about the quality of their silver, Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. <laughs> Tim, Heidi, how's it going? Great. Thinking about my silverware. Yeah. About your silverware, yeah. I'm actually checking my teeth in the silverware right now. So you would never, ever put silverware on the table that had a speck of anything. It's perfect, right? I assume. Oh my goodness. Of course. Now. Yeah, there's oh. standards to, to right. be alive. I'm not a farmer. <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm not a farmer. Is that what you said, Heidi? Yeah, that's from, well, that is indeed a quote from 30 Rock. If you remember that episode when... I don't remember that episode. Jack Donahue is dressing himself for dinner in a tuxedo. I'm not a farmer. And somebody asks him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm, I'm going to dinner. What am I, a farmer? And he's like, put it up. <laughs> so that's just part of the vernacular of my life. I, I do think farmers are classy people. Yeah, not not, yeah, to, not I, to throw right, farmers under the uh, right, I'm a window under the tractor fan. Anything, I am but. for pro-farming. <laughs> You're pro, yes. you're pro produce, just right. to be clear. Yes, but I do polish my silver, silver. Yeah. every day. Actually, my butler does. Right. You're, you're a small child. I, I think we've gone over we've yeah. gone over the fact yeah. that you're a small child of your butler before. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so we are here to talk about day two afternoon, Mortimer's Pond, Dorset, and then day three morning. I don't have... I'm not turned to that page, so I don't know the... Uh, Taunton, Somerset. I assume is how you say that. Uh, before we dive right into that, though, I do want to say a quick word from our friends over at the Classic Learning Test. They are a classically based alternative to the SAT and the ACT, and it's the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 130 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of these colleges have endorsed it as their preferred college admissions test. Students benefit from same-day results and can share them with colleges at no additional charge. So to learn more or to register, head over to cltexam.com. Again, that's cltexam.com. You can also listen to Brian Phillips' interview with founder Jeremy Tate on The Commons. They did that episode back in late December. So if you go find The Commons um, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts, you can listen to that conversation. So thanks to CLT for sponsoring. Uh, if you are in the market for a college and the, that whole process, then be sure to check them out and uh, check out their distinctives between the uh, between them and then what the traditional tests are are forcing upon your children. <laughs> um, but let's talk. Let's talk silver and butlers and traditions and pawns and it, it accidentally lewd jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which that would never happen on this no, show. No. Um, do you guys? I've been thinking about the the the, tra- the the traditional narrative structures of a lot of the books that we read, and of great books in general. And I've been thinking about how it compares to this book. When we first started it, Heidi, you mentioned 
the idea that in, you know there's an odyssey going on here. It's clear that you know it's it's a it's a road book, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of archetypes at play here. Yes. But I was thinking about the archetypes of protagonists mm. and conflict and all that sort of thing. And I think Tim, in one of the first episodes, I asked you, "What is the conflict of this book?" And I've been a little intrigued by how much not not surprised exactly but a little intrigued by how much people that are listening have been loving this book. A lot of people are saying, I accidentally finished it, which is that's a yeah. pretty good sign, right? Um, yeah. So I've been thinking about you know, why that is. In, in a lot of ways, this, is, this does not bear the hallmarks of traditional narrative structure, whether it's the protagonist, the antagonist, sort of the central conflicts. So Tim, do you, given that and given your interest you, as a player, as someone who crafts story, and I know that a play is a different form, than right. novel. But given your interest in those things, why do you think that this book is able to resonate so much with people despite sort of avoiding some of those archetypal motifs and elements? I'm not going to, I don't, I don't think it's subverting them, but it's certainly right, right. playing with them in a traditional sense. So what do you think of that? I, I was thinking this week as I was reading that I think part of the reason this book is so compelling is because it's kind of, to throw another genre in, it's kind of a mystery. Huh. And and I don't, I mean, we're, we've thrown so many different genres in this book, and I think it's fair for us to throw all these different genres at the book because it is an odyssey. Like, it is a road trip. It is a comedy of manners. It is a love story. It is all these things because... The book is so well done. But I think underneath all of it is this desire to know what happened. Like, what has happened in this book? So the road trip aspect of it um, gives Mr. Stevens an excuse to remember the things that that have happened at Darlington Hall and the things that have happened between he and Miss Keaton. And there's just something very clearly missing in his recounting. Deli- How do we say this? Um, he is, whether consciously or I think unconsciously, he is editing this story so that we don't really know what has happened, but we do know that something has happened. And the mystery is kind of unfolding through him relating to us the story. So an example of it in this um, chapter is he has this conversation during his trip. For me, it begins on page 119. Um, you know what I like about Tim? He, what's that? Tim is always like a, like a real lit professor. He's always got a very specific passage just tucked away in his holster. He's like... <laughs> It's like one, two, three, draw. You know, he's like he's ready to go. That's right. And for me, it begins on page one nineteen. Um, Fire away, sir. <laughs> so he's having this conversation about Darlington Hall with this um, other man that he's met while traveling, and the other man says, "Darlington Hall, Darlington Hall must be a really posh place. It rings a bell even to an idiot like yours truly." <laughs> Darlington Hall, hang on. You don't mean. Darlington Hall, Lord Darlington's place. <laughs> it's a good bit of dialogue. And, right? It should be a little bit more cockney. So, so oh, it was a good I, performance. A good performance, but not a, like <laughs> actually like an on point yeah. um, accent. Right. It's good dialogue. 
we don't have any reason, I think, at this point in the book to know why that would be so jarring to mm-hmm. this man. And then, oh my gosh, the plot thickens when he says, um, when, when Stevens denies working for Lord Darlington. It right. was Lord Darlington's residence until his death three years ago. The house is now residence of Mr. John Faraday, an American gentleman. Okay, so maybe he doesn't deny it, but he clearly sidesteps it. Instead of saying, yes, I was in Lord Darlington's employ for, you know, like the best years of my life or anything like that, he totally sidesteps it and begins talking about the American gentleman, Lord Faraday, even though until this point, everything in the story has been about Lord Darlington. And is this the second denial now? I think, I think there's the a, first denial. I think this is the first, and the next one takes place. It's the one um, when, the, when the people come to visit Faraday. Right, but that, the, I don't think that was in this week's reading, was it? Yeah, because I didn't. Was? I haven't read ahead. Oh, okay, Unlike, then, yeah. I'm professional about this. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know why I accidentally finished but. the book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah, that's in, that's in, that was in, it was either in this reading or it was in for last week, but I know, I haven't read ahead, so I know. I've read the book. Before. I think it's in this one. Yeah, and this now, there's is a, there's the first a, denial. This okay. is Peter's first denial of Christ here. So. Right. And at the top of page 120, it comes up again. So just continuing the passage, the man was carefully eyeing me again. I said, oh no, I'm employed by Mr. John Faraday, the American gentleman who bought the house from the Darlington family. Oh, so you wouldn't have known that Lord Darlington, just that I wondered what he was like, what sort of bloke he was. And so I don't know if you're thinking of that, David, like the very, very overt denial that he um, worked for Darlington. Maybe there's another one later on. Well, there's, the, there's the one where Faraday has the American, the other American friends coming and the woman pulls Stevens aside and says, you worked for him, right? And, and, because Faraday, Faraday had told them that it was the original butler. He was like the real thing. Mrs. Wakefield. Yeah. That is just yeah. a couple pages after. You're and, right. And Faraday, uh, and he says, you embarrassed me. Right. And he says, I didn't mean to. But you can tell there's something, you know, Stevens doesn't want to be either wrapped up in, you know, whatever reputation Darlington had. So why does he do right. that? Stevens, like, why does he deny yeah. him? I don't know. What do you think? Well, Tim, I, I would love to say what I think, but you started it. So why don't, what, what do you think <laughs> you is happening? It. Yeah. What do you think is happening here? I think it's because, let me back up and say the broader, the broader point I think that makes the narrative so compelling is that it's so mysterious. Mm. Like why we're driven forward and when we reach this part and he denies working for, you know, the man that he clearly adores, admires, all of his memories are associated with. Yeah. Why does he deny it? Yeah. And like, I think that like, that really urges us to read on. Now, I think there's a very clear answer. And I th- I'm trying to remember if like we know by this point, I think we at least have hints that Lord Darlington is very sympathetic with the Germans. Um, right. That we at least know that he's sympathetic at this point. Right. The next Whether chapter, or not we know how sympathetic, that's... I, I, the chapter I mean, I right after this, call. that is part of the reading for today, is the one where 
it brings in that uh, famous German ambassador who uh, mm-hmm. who is of mm-hmm. questionable, you know, character. Yes, um, and history has you know determined that. Right. But, I, but I at like- the same time, and I'll, I promise I'll stop talking in a second. Oh, at the same time, that this kind of mystery about why he would deny working for Lord Darlington, there's another mystery going on, which is what is going on with he and Miss Kenton? Mm-hmm. Like, we're not getting, we're not getting an accurate reflection of what has happened. And again, for me, I think it's because Stephen Stevens. He he lives in his like subconscious and his conscience lives in this very murky area where it's hard to discern. Is he lying to himself? Is he ignorant, like deliberately, or is he just plain ignorant about what's going on? It it, it also strikes me that perhaps you know I like the I like the suggestion at least that you made that perhaps he's lying to himself because he could, it it almost seems like, you know, he could be saying, I'm trying to protect the reputation of this person. Right. He's trying to, he's trying to, you know, really what it is is it's avoidance, it's fear, it's annoyance, it's all those kind of things, but he's trying to, he he can, he can explain it away as, well, I was just, you know, I'm trying to protect the reputation of this guy and it's not my job to be gossiping about this this person who I really respected. Yeah. But I love what you said about how, th- about how, how slowly Ishiguro is revealing some of these mysteries because we do know from the very beginning how much he respects this guy. Right. And so from the yeah. very beginning, we know that this person means a lot to him and that his, even his ideas of his career and of, of dignity and some of these things are wrapped up in his role as a great, man's butler as being a servant of this great house. And so we, we already know that. And so what he's doing is he's dropping in these bits of dissonance, essentially like these questions Yeah, that it's not, it's, this isn't, this isn't a Ruth Rendell novel. First page, the mystery is established, right? The Lord died. Right. It was gruesome. The detective tries to solve it. Right. So right. we know what the mystery is at the beginning. The question here is we don't know what the mystery is, but we keep reading as much to find out what the mystery is as, See if I, I don't think, I think I just said the sentence wrong, but we read because we need that dissonance, that characterization dissonance to be resolved as right. much as we do to figure out what the mystery is. So those two things go hand in hand. They're both mysterious and they're, they're kind of all wrapped up in each other and that, that there's narrative in that, but then there's also, you know, that the way that Shigeru is able to reach out to the audience and just kind of get, get you in it, I mean, like the, the path with the pathos as much as the mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sense? Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Heidi. Yeah. I, I mean, this conversation started with your question, David, about the kind of the upending of the traditional heroic journey narrative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yes, uh, Mr. Stevens goes on this odyssey and the odyssey begins in a very traditional way. He's given this freedom. Uh, he's at the end of his life. He is going after the girl, right? That is a right. very traditional heroic journey. And however, along this archetypal journey, the mystery that keeps coming, I love the fact that we're talking about the mystery of this novel. I, I, I think there is a plot mystery 
right? What happened between him and Miss Kenton? Why here we have another mystery. Why is he denying the man that he obviously loves? Obviously loves exactly. Uh, So there's those plot mysteries, but I think the real mystery of this novel is the heart and soul of Mr. Stevens. Uh Like, why does he do what he does? There are only two people that seem, well, three, if you count his father, that seem to matter to him at all. And his reflections weave around these people, and yet he never personally connects with any of them in the whole novel. Yeah. And he doesn't seem capable of expressing how he feels. So we see that in the most obvious sense. We we see that when his father is dying in the previous readings, where he there's the, he calls him by the third person for goodness sake. Such, so yes. he doesn't know how to interact with him. He doesn't know how to express affection, a concern, or anything like that. And then here, you know, he doesn't know how to express his respect, you know, right. for the law. He doesn't know how to reconcile a reputation with the way he feels about the guy. And right. Well, and it's very clear even in this section as he's rereading his letters that one letter that he got from his Kenton, and he talks about how it doesn't seem to say what he thought it said. <laughs> Right. I thought yeah. that she was saying, but I, I, you know, I reread it several times. I can't remember what page it's on. Maybe Tim knows, but um, that's yeah. <laughs> um, you got one locked and loaded there, right, Tim. That, right, right. In when he stuff. says, I, I reread it several times last night and I can't quite find the thread of her saying she wants to come back. Right. Yeah. So he's imposing this wish and I all this wishful thinking upon this letter and he's starting to understand that, but he still can't face that in himself. He doesn't just say, I wanted her to say she wanted to come back to me. Mm-hmm. And I can't seem to find it. There's just always this desire, this unmet desire, this longing, this yearning to connect and the inability to do so, which that is not a traditional hero's journey uh, in which there's always some kind of moral overcoming. You know, the the hero slays the monster and gets the girl. That That is not what seems to be unfolding here particularly in these chapters to the end of day three morning by the way it's not the very end of the chapter for this this reading okay but yeah i like i i think i think we've touched on two sort of core things that are driving the novel right so we've laid that out there's this, this there's the sort of mysteries there's the miss kenton there's the what's going on with lord darlington and then there's the what is happening in the soul of Stevens. Right. David, can I, can I jump in here? Of course. Um, I have a comment and then a question. First, the comment. Then, the question. <laughs> the comment. Proceed. Um, I would the, prefer the, the other way, but... <laughs> <laughs> but we're up, upending these. Yeah, we're... Yes. <laughs> the book... St- the mystery of it is akin to me of it's like we're looking at this pond. There's not a ripple on the pond. This is Mr. Stevens' psyche, Mr. Stevens' appearance, Mr. Stevens' person. Um, it's this, it's this pond. There's no breeze blowing. It's perfectly still, but we know because every once in a while, we'll see something erupt from underneath the surface. You know, we'll see some big waves kind of tremble up from 
down below and then the pond will go still again and i think part of reading the story is kind of wondering okay how big is the disturbance underneath the water how big is it going to be we know that there's something there but we're just getting little glimpses of it but is it as big as we think that it might be and the answer is going to be yes hmm. it's as big as i mean it's absolutely huge not just for himself but also for the historical events that are kind of unfolding within lord darlington's house it's going to be a huge monster that's underneath the surface but we're just kind of getting the ripples tim and his metaphors again good one imaginative mortar to what's stirring beneath the waters Well, our work is done. Good That's job. it for this week. Right? Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well balls. done. Well said. We've okay. been armed with a metaphor. Maybe that's why he put the question last because he knew he was going like, to. Yeah, so what's the question? <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> <laughs> you should just say yeah. every time you speak now, you should be like, I have a comment and then I have a question. It should always be your comment <laughs> followed by. Do agree? Agree. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you do agree or are you a fool? Yep. <laughs> you right, yeah. Do you agree or are you a fool? <laughs> well, what is okay, the question? My question, Seriously. my question is going to shift us into I think a potentially very different land. Um I okay, I can't help but read this book as uh how do I say this? Um with metaphors, most likely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that I wonder if Mr. Stevens, in his kind of like internal um, shackles, for me is so representative of like the 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 male psyche in pain. Huh. Continue. Well, that's a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Go on. Um, is that it? You just, that's, agree again, or disagree? Not, I agree yeah. or disagree? <laughs> I was say, where's the question? <laughs> I'll try to put some more clothes on the mannequin. Um, golly, this is like a, that was actually a terrible metaphor. I didn't like, get was, that one. You I got to say, <laughs> two out of three. <laughs> Clothes. I thought you said cloves. For I did. I thought you yeah. said cloves too. I was like, like oh, 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 no. Clothes. Yeah, no, clothes. Put some clothes on the mannequin. Nobody wants to look or? at a naked mannequin. So. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I like this, Tim. Seriously, well, maybe it works good. because Continue. the mannequin, the male psych, I don't know what he's. There's got to be something here that he can wrap this all up. So exactly. we're just going to sit back and watch you work for a while and see how right, you Yeah. yeah. No, like, I'm looking forward to this. This is good. Go. I, male psyche and pain. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of the other characters. Do you need from me to just talk for a little read. while so you can think about it? <laughs> <laughs> you press pause in the recording. I, I'm trying to think of the other um, characters that we've read. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, Howard's End. Mm-hmm. What is uh, Wilcox. Wilcox? Wilcox. Wilcox, in so many ways, is like Mister Stevens. There's this. There's a shield that he has in front of him. There's there's armor that he has in front of him. In fairness to Wilcox, I genuinely think that he it's it's more of a temperamental issue with with Wilcox. He's not he is just temperamentally reserved. 
But I also feel like there is this kind of barrier that he has put between himself and the world and the way that he navigates the world or anything outside of himself is he does not want to take that shield away. And that shield is kind of like consists of the practicalities of life, of business, of finance, of um, buying a new house and selling the old house. And I get the same, I mean, like Mr. Stevens over and over returns to professional matters and decorum and preserving a kind of like professional face. When his father dies, when he seems to be falling in love with Miss Kenton, when Lord Darlington is exhibiting sympathies with Germany, he, he is like hiding behind this armor. And I, this is obviously just like I'm speaking from my experience throughout my life, but I see that as the, the sort of like comfortable default position of, in Jungian terms, like that kind of masculine psyche that's, if it's hurt on the inside, there's a desire to protect that hurt by putting up this kind of like steely armor that in this case takes the form of professionalism. Dignity. He, Dignity. He, I'm, I'm really intrigued by what you're saying because it, I was thinking in the previous episode, we didn't get to this much in the conversation, but about how he he phrases what you're describing there with a word that sounds virtuous. Right. Like he gives mm-hmm. it a name that is virtuous and he's able to identify elements of that of that dignity of that virtue that are absolutely crucial right they're absolutely a part of a virtuous life but he also is able to then ignore other things by calling a dignity right and so i think that yeah. when you first when he first talks about it you're like okay that's a very respectful way to approach things and then a little bit by bit you start to see the cracks in that 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 what he's calling what he's calling dignity is maybe not as purely virtuous. Like maybe the motives or there's some kind of higher level thing that he's after some higher level goal or, or virtue that, that he thinks he's reaching for, but he's also able to hide his pain or whatever word we want to use. Yeah. motives, whatever, um, behind the, something that he's naming a virtue. Does that make sense? But Heidi is an actual, trained psychologist. So maybe we should let her talk now. Or we could just go off into a thrilling discussion of Enneagram types and figure out what Stevens would have been. <laughs> Let's ask Matt to come join us. Yeah, the, um, there's, a, there's a subset of our audience that was like, yes, what is... <laughs> Stevens is a seven. I, I don't actually know. I, He's definitely not a seven. Um, the Yes. So I, I am a trained counselor, but I'm not a man. So, um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by, by what you just said, Tim. Um, and I think I keep, I'm making some connections between another book that we read, the three of us together, the power and the glory in which we had the same conversation about the heroic journey. Uh, a protagonist goes out, uh, on a personal odyssey, uh, that is reflected in his journey in the novel and um 
and the the form of the heroic journey turns out differently than it does in a traditional, you know, this is both of these protagonists, they are not Achilles, they are not Odysseus. Um, they go through an, an internal process of dying to themselves and their ideals. And then the question is, will they, what will they, will they rise again or will they stay under the water as you pointed out in your metaphor? Right. Mm. So that, but I'm thinking those, those are the similarities between those two novels and this conversation that the three of us had on one of the episodes in the power and the glory. And then, but in this novel, um, the man, the wounded man, as you're pointing out this, this, traumatized male psyche handles it exactly opposite to how our priest did in the power and the glory. Yeah. Right. So instead of removing himself from the society, becoming an outcast from it, this man is, I mean, abnormally obsessed with integrating himself within it to the detriment of Yes. Right. So that's we go so, from, that's so sharp, Heidi. That's such a sharp observation that he's I'm like, I don't know what to do with all of this, this psyche that is in pain. As you pointed out, I don't know what to do with all that. So I'm, I'm just going to keep following the rules and, and then alienate anything in my life that will, uh, undermine those rules and then call it gave it the name and of a call virtue it dignity yeah. which is yeah. to your point david how this chapter begins is a very long how the section that we read this week begins is a very long several page um kind of contemplation mm-hmm. of the moral responsibility of a butler mm-hmm. right and how he can call what he's doing morally good I find that. And then the next, the very, the only action he takes is to deny his master. Right. After a long meditation, several pages long of how what he was doing was good and helpful and promoted not only the well-being of his master, but the good that his, that Darlington was doing in the world. Uh huh. And then the action he takes is to deny him. Right. So there's just, these complicated interweaving. I mean, as you, I, as you said, Tim, to me, that the delicate is lace, like all of this, this weaving and unraveling of a life that happens in these central part, the central part of the book, this is the dead center of the book. And Mm -hmm. so that's always important. So instead of having some kind of moral overcoming, we have just an abdication, continual abdication. And calling it dignity. Yeah. That, uh, that, and, and that, I'm, I'm thinking about the word duty. Yeah. Now. Versus desire. Yeah. Yeah. Because it seems like, like, does he, I think that's one of the big questions is, I mean, why does he do the things that he's doing? Right. I'm not saying like, why did Ishiguro make this character do these things? But why does it seem like this character is doing the things that he's doing. Like, why does he deny him? Right. Is it because he's, is it, is it because he's afraid because he's tired of the conversations, these conversations coming up? Right. Is it because he thinks it's silly? I mean, it, does he feel like it's his duty to deny him? And thus it is part of the dignity that 
he has to keep or does he or is it that what he's doing is you know there's something sort of meta right about this approach to this book because you know in, in a sense you know tim when you, you know people people you talked about the idea of like burying things and all that but what he's doing is this isn't coming out until he's writing it down right so he's yeah he's the artist who can't express it but then he starts writing it and right. the, he, it begins to come out of him and he probably isn't able to even identify or put together the mm-hmm. two and two or see the you know he, until he goes back later and reads it or well see how it ends right but he isn't able to identify the, the complicatedness the complicated nature of what he's right. of what he's putting down on paper but it's like he's trying yeah. to process it and doesn't it's and that makes it very unclear as to what why he's doing the things that he's doing because he doesn't he doesn't really tell us why he's doing the things that he's doing right. and even if he did i wouldn't necessarily be, know how to what right. to think of it when he yeah says, right well, because he he tries to come up with some explanations sometimes he even says why did i why did I say no when I was asked if I Yeah, those little Darlington. subtle dropping right. of that is really but his, important. His explanations are so inadequate that yeah. you know that there is something much deeper going on. Um, and I, as I've, as I read this, I kept thinking, he talks so much about, is it the Hawes Society, the Hayes Society, the yeah, yeah. Butler Society? Yeah. Um, and he also doesn't like. But... Does he, right? Does he want, exactly. he was, he probably not invited into it. And <laughs> he's so, just bitter. yes. And so he's trying to come up with some kind of explanation. Like, I'm, look, I'm actually so proud of all of my accomplishments as a butler, right? I just, I so forcefully integrated myself into the, everyone's ex- expectations and my own expectations, my father's expectations, Darlington's, the world's that, and then I wasn't invited. How do I make sense of that? So here's my case. In some ways, he seems to be arguing his case without actually just saying, I wanted to be a great butler. Hmm. Yeah. He never that says that. That was my desire. Book, yes. And I wanted to be acknowledged for that because what else? Like I didn't, you know, we don't know, we don't know what's going to happen, right? But if this heroic journey doesn't end the way he wants, what reward will he have for sublimating his humanity to his profession? Yeah. Hmm. Mm. We've been getting a bunch of uh, interesting comments on the Facebook page. And in some ways, somebody mentioned the passive aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like that passive aggressiveness that you see is almost the external manifestation of manifestation, rather, of all the things that uh, you guys are saying here, I feel like. Right. Um, because Englishness, again, we've been kind of in the realm of psychology here, but Englishness is a huge question of this novel, right? Darlington. Right. And I mean, every single person in this novel is upper class or servant class is dominated, overshadowed by this question of what does it mean to be a part of this particular society yeah. On public level as well as the private and, level. And to be a specific role right. in that society. Yes. Because I, someone, I think, posted this on Facebook, it sort of alludes to the question or suggests the question, like, what is a good butler? Also suggests the question, what is a good chauffeur? What is a good farmer? I mean, like, yes. the questions are not that much. Yeah. They're, On they're, down the line. Exactly. So they're, they're, um, the, the part, the specifics, mm-hmm. the particulars of how you answer the question 
in terms of what the actual duties are might change. But does does the does the definition of dignity change whether you're the chauffeur or the butler or a farmer or a Lord Darlington right. or a German ambassador or a farmer's daughter, you know, right. on the street right. saving an animal. <laughs> well, and what you brought up, I think, David, is really important, the the moral weight of the word dignity, right? That's that's going to be a positive term. And it should be a positive term. But I mean, even the term passive aggressive, I use that on the podcast. Uh, yeah, somebody was mentioning, yes. mentioning it. Um, and there was comments about that on Facebook. And I, to, to an American, dignity has a lot to do with direct communication. Right. Right? But Lewis. An, yes. But to an Englishman, uh, what we call passive aggression, they might call dignity. And I'm not... Politeness. I'm not, yes, yes. They they as keeping the peace. <laughs> yes, that there's just some things better left unsaid and undone in keeping with being a classy person, right? So that, but but an American definition of, and a modern definition of dignity is going to include direct communication. Of course, we'd say that could be abused, but. I mean, in, in English terms, that is just mannerly. <laughs> Tim, I'm so glad that Heidi just used the word classy. Yeah. Because <laughs> like she's sitting there, very good posture. Oh she's got like, her, I totally, she's in the studio. I totally she's got it. her notebook with like perfectly written notes, like nice spacing, nice handwriting. And I'm like slouching here eating a cinnamon roll while we talk. and <laughs> <laughs> dribbling, dribbling crumbs on your oh, yeah. shirt. Whatever. Yeah, I'm slouching in the chair. Just move. I've got the. I have to have my microphone on like a stilt thing that I can lift up and down <laughs> so I can chew. And <laughs> I have no notes anywhere. I'm just you know start with one question and, and go. Yeah. What about I you, Tim? Like Are you classy? Your sweater and your collar, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're looking nice. That's a classy comment. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Tim, would you define yourself as classy? I mean, when you're not sweating. <laughs> That's such a great question. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I'm joking, but also I feel like is a question at the heart of this book in right. some ways. I mean, we wouldn't use the word classy, but it feels like one of the big questions he's constantly asking himself is, wait, am I actually classy? Like even when he, you know, he has the comment, he tries to, he's trying to be funny. So he's right. practicing being funny. And he, yes. um, he makes the comment and then realizes, oh, it could have been taken the wrong way. And right. he's beating himself up all about it. He doesn't know what's the appropriate thing to do right now. because he, And it seems like he's constantly asking himself, am I classy? And I know that that word is kind of... Right. You know, you were using it differently. And, right. I, and it's kind of a joking word. Right. But it seems to be at the core, like at, he's that sort of central examina- self-examination yes. is very central to this book. But I still want to know, Tim, do you think you're classy? I like to dress well. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't always do it, but it's but, important for me to dress well. And like, I think you're like this, David, like you're crisp looking uh-huh, and it's important for me to be <laughs> crisp looking, but the sweating really must be an issue then. It's an issue. <laughs> By the way, I'm just so our listeners know, <laughs> Tim and I, I'm not actually like Tim and I like each other. I'm just teasing him like a little brother. So, <laughs> um, you're both very classy men. So, so maybe yes. I should apologize. But if you look at my notes, Heidi, like if you looked uh-huh. at my notes, my uh-huh. notes are like, I've gotten better over the years, but they are a jumble. They're, they are 
not organized. It's very. Thank you for explaining that to me. <laughs> so I'm and wait, what do you mean? Uh, David is indeed eating his cinnamon roll with a fork in a very classy <laughs> manner. Yeah, he's no, you're classy. both very I mean, classy people. Dignified. I mean, there's people. Certain point, there's got to be a standard. I'm not a farmer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't let my tortoises run in the street. Right. Um, <laughs> what about your Listen, ducks and I, geese? Oh, well, I mean, whatever. They're free. <laughs> free range. I'm, I'm thinking about um, whether or not... So, Stevens, as a passive-aggressive, part of that certainly is his Englishness. Part of that... Part of that, it seems to me, is... I, I think... I know that I can be passive aggressive when I feel like I am in danger. Like I, if someone says, um, and it feels like an accusation to me, Tim, why did you do such and such? I will kind of like instinctively snap into a mode of mitigating whatever it was that I did, lessening the potential harm of whatever it is that I'm being accused of. Um, so I can sort of manage the outcome. And then like, if I get like upset about that and then the aggressive part of it comes two hours, two days, two weeks later in which I would kind of like get my revenge on somebody for how dare they accuse me of that. And so I would do some like, um, roundabout way of sliding them that's how passive aggression works in my life and in the life of others and i think that stevens <laughs> i don't know if it is so it, the question for me is how calculated is stevens passive aggression to put a very specific point on it how did he have to kind of rehearse his denial of Lord Darlington or did it just happen? Did it just kind of come out of him? Right. And my hunch is that it just kind of came out of him. That's what I think too, Tim. And okay, so why do you think so? I think he didn't oh, know do. it until he did it. And I think right. David's right. He said earlier, it's fear. I think he's afraid all the time. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. Mr. Stevens is afraid. And this, but I also think he genuinely loves, loved Darlington. Yes. So I do see this. I, I am, I want to be very, very clear in what I'm about to say. I am not comparing Lord Darlington to our Lord, but I am comparing Peter to Mr. Stevens. Right. I think the judgment cast upon Lord Darlington profoundly disordered Mr. Stevens and he doesn't know what to do with it. And in the moment when he is asked to stand by him, he abdicates that responsibility uh, in order to protect himself from the same judgment that Darlington received because he knows mm -hmm. Darlington did it all in good faith. And what do you do with that? What do you do when someone mm -hmm. does something thinking, believing that they're right and you follow them? And then it turns out that they were 
on the side of the devil, right? Whether intentionally or not, they was used as a pawn. And so it's got to be a mirror into Mr. Steven. So what if that's true about me? What if I'm just being used as a pawn? What if nothing I ever did actually mattered or meant anything or had the weight I thought it did? What if I walked away from happiness for nothing? Or worse, that it actually activated evil. Exactly. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. It, yes. Without That's almost like the unbearable thought. And so for him to own, like to, to say, yes, I'm standing by this man is a way of, to him, admitting complicity, whether he means to or not. And he just can't mm. face that because he's kind of a coward. I think that one of the, the, the things, there's a recurring idea of, I mean, you obviously in Woodhouse too, it's in any Butler thing, but of you see in Downton Abbey even of like the butler having to move around and right. you know, you might be a guest that comes to the house. And so the Lord of the house sends the butler to go take care of that guest. Cause that guy couldn't bring his butler or something right. or Jesus has to go take care of someone else. So, you know, there's this role that you are caring for and um, you are making comfortable this person. And so um, I'm trying to think where my brain was going with that. But there's this idea of, of um, well, so so he's probably thinking there's probably all kinds of people that came into the house. So on the surface, there's just this obvious thing that he may have actually helped an evil person be happy, right? And that that in and of itself is 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 complicated, right? But then then there's the sense of um, is there a difference between serving someone and enabling them, right? And I think that seems to be a big question in this book as well yes um that's good even if they don't know that what they're doing is wrong or the even if like did he enable was he serving lord darlington or was he enabling some evil that evil to happen and those are those are two different things Uh, they're two different questions but they might not be two different things you know like his duty is to serve lord darlington Hmm. but did he by in keeping his duty and having dignity and doing what his duty was did that all get subverted and turned upside down because it enabled evil so right. dignity, like he makes this sense of dignity, this sense of duty, this ultimate good, this inherent good. But that might not be true because in doing this thing that he thought was good, something evil happens. Right. And that makes the whole question of dignity that much more complicated. It's not just a question of, of this inner dissonance within him. Mm-hmm. It's also that there's something more metaphysical about it. Like they're, they're much more complicated in the metaphysics of dignity. Right if you will. Does that make well, sense? It d- absolutely makes sense. And if... Did I use the word metaphysics right? <laughs> I know, right? Good job. <laughs> that the... For a plateness, you did. Right. For a plateness, you did. Well, we... That's a yeah. shout out to... That's a shout out to Matt Bianca. Right. Yeah, sorry. Exactly. It's the second sorry. time we're talking about that. Matt Bianca here. So the... But if that's true, David, and I, I think that a lot of this book comes down to this, then Mr. Lewis is the true hero of this book. Because he calls he's the one who says, and he doesn't say, you guys are bad guys. He says, you're mm-hmm. amateurs. Right? Yeah, I think we got it. Well-meaning, naive yes, amateurs. Yes, like you think you're doing good, but you're yeah. actually not. Yeah. And I was glad that last week we got, we were able to come around, to, we were able to talk about him with a bit of sympathy because right. in his remembrances, Stevens doesn't speak kindly of him. Right. But the things that he remembers speak themselves speak more kindly of him right but that's uh-huh. a little bit frightening to me because and that's that's why i think this book is i mean this is a great book because that 
is frightening because the alter- the alternate world that Mr. Lewis presents is like my nightmare world, right? The world- A world with the, no butlers? Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but the world of realpolitik, the world of pragmatism, the world of utilitarianism, the world in which professionals don't take honor into account, but take only what will work. Mm-hmm. And that is scary. And but I mean, what what seems to be happening is that then the world in which honor is taken in, into account is an amateur world, which of course the etymology of the world amateur is one who loves, right? Hmm. So Tim, do you think that I mean is is the book proposing that there has to be some kind of middle ground between those two things? Is that what the book is proposing, or is the book proposing that it's all just too complicated and people human nature is complicated and there is no solution? Or is that just something we have to wait and see? I, I think it's a great the question. Answer? I think... <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> I, I think it's such a good question that we should tr- we should like address it now. Maybe we can't fully address it until we get to the end of the book. Mm-hmm. It, to be honest, I just speak kind of like personally here. That I, I kind of think because of my own convictions. I'm very comfortable with a sort of mashup of those two views. So I'm probably not as uncomfortable as Heidi is with this idea of um, the kind of real politic of the political situation. Um, but I also with Heidi that like, yeah, I want things driven by honor and integrity like that's what's like should be underneath like all sort of like public motives i think because i cut my teeth in the political world early on i've never been able to see my way out of the kind of brute realities of of um the real politic of making legislation it is like it is an ugly, ugly process with all these different forces of power like driving their agendas. And um, we don't live in the world anymore where we could operate solely by honor. Now, does, am I suggesting we cannot be honorable people? We cannot have integrity? By no means. I think we can, and I think it's essential. But I also think that um, I think Mr. Lewis is right. I think he's right that um, the kind of economic and militaristic and technological forces of the world that we're living in, by not accepting them as a reality, then I think good people sideline themselves. Right. And so I, I am very, I'm not just comfortable with a kind of like mashup of acknowledging the real politic of today's world Mm. and also fighting to preserve one's like integrity and one's word. And to be honest, I think that's the solution. And, to be totally frank, um, that's part of like I bristle a little bit sometimes with the kind of contemporary um, 
I don't know what the right word is, conservative movement. And I don't mean just conservative politically, but right, right, the right. kind of like the, the yearning for the bygone days of yore in which we can, everything is driven by, you know, good intentions and good people are on this side and bad people are on the other side. Sometimes I just think, boy, um, but by not acknowledging that the world has changed and by just yearning for some other world, I think that's kind of casting a patina over the old world that is, that is not really an accurate description of the old world. And it fails to acknowledge the kind of new situation that we're in um, that Mr. Lewis addresses at the dinner table. It's a, it's a different world that we're living in. Right. So was the old world always inadequate to the task of addressing the great evil of Nazism? Right. I think that that's a huge question of the 20th century. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the question. I mean, yes. is there a bigger question? Right. That's exactly I mean, like, why. No. Why was the yeah. world unable to resist? I mean, there was no more deadly century in the world right. than the 20th century. Right. And it wasn't just in Germany, right? right. The Nazis were a blip on the radar compared to the Soviet Union, compared to yes. the communist. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm overstating that as someone who was the grand, the grandson of you know someone who lived during, lived in Germany during the war. But right, the but point is, were, it wasn't the only right. nationalist evil that arose. And the, yeah. and the question of the 20th century is what happened to man? Yes, such that we were unable, or what has always been true of man, that we were unable to stop that evil from rising. Right. Well, and that's the question that Lewis is. I mean, he accepts that as you're saying. The question hasn't gone away, by the way. It it has not gone away. It will rise again. Because we have, you're right. The the question is, is English society, Darlington represents this. Yeah. Right. He is the quintessential Englishman. And when encountered with this great evil, he folds under the inadequacy of his training. This, this speaks to what Tim's saying. And it's so important. I don't think it's what people talk about enough because when we talk about the old world fading away, it's what, what people tend to talk about is that there's these traditions. There's this like halcyon world. Buttling. Yeah. There's this halcyon world that, that we miss. And it's, it's, you know, there's these sort of, it's it's the stereotypical traditions that somehow held the world together. But I don't know. It's so much more complicated than that. It is because mm-hmm. what? Well, go go on. I interrupted you. The, oh no! Now I'm interested in what you're saying. And also, halcyon is one of your favorite words. No, halcyon is one of yeah, it's a great words. word, yeah. David. So, but I mean, what was I saying? I I felt bad in the middle of. I felt <laughs> no, like I interrupted you. No, not at all. Like, we're in the, the office thing. together, yeah. so like it makes I like have more empathy for you. <laughs> Tim, I don't care so much about. But, the um, empathy has to travel a shorter distance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but it's so much more than just are we keeping these old traditions. Right. It's it's that. What was the first thing I said? <laughs> this is good radio. Um, <laughs> good podcasting. Actually, um, it might be good podcast. I don't know what the standards are anymore. Well, um, that is not could, about. In some ways, what you're saying, to use the particular example, is it's not about the butling. It's not about whether or not you have a butler. It's about whether or not the underlying foundations of 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 how a society c- creates goodness and advances goodness right. and upholds goodness can that stand against a great yes. evil? And where where are we where are we finding and preserving the capacity? Yes. 
to to not just preserve tra- tradition, small t, right. but to preserve like culture. Right. You and know, the small that's yeah. a part of it, but there's there's it's more than and it's gonna it has to be more than just you know, the, quote unquote, how the know, silver looks. How the, the, Exactly. Yeah. But buttling. Buttling. I really like that word. Yeah. I mean, I like halcyon too. Halcyon buttling. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Halcyon. You, you know what I what a good um class that Circe could offer would be? Um, instead of like the On Halcyon buttling with Tim McIntosh. Exactly. I just think that's a winning I mean, just like just that headline. <laughs> Imaginative the droves are gonna show up for that. Please sign me up. Um not just, I think a, a definitely class, a dress code. <laughs> definitely a dress code. A class on preserving. We there's a lot of talk about preserving traditions. Mm-hmm. I would love to like hear more about instantiating new traditions. For example, my mom uh, and I talked this week. And I can't remember what made her think of it, but she was talking about cell phone etiquette and she was just kind of appalled she told me this story and it was kind of appalling you know someone just like talking while they were checking out and like the grocer is trying to get information so that they can get that person you know checked out but the person's too busy on their phone hang up the phone so she was complaining i think rightfully about a lack of cell phone etiquette and i said you know um, i have this feeling that new etiquette is being kind of like worked into the dough of culture. So, for example, I don't know if you guys do this, but I, I think you do. If, if the three of us were sitting down for dinner, we would probably all put our cell phones away. And then we would probably, if um, we needed to make a call or if we were concerned that, you know, one of our kids is trying to get a hold of us, we would probably say something like, Would you mind if I checked my phone for a second? And then we would look at the phone. Or we'd step away to make a phone call or something like that. And I think that's so, an example of an etiquette being, being sort of brought into the culture to handle the new realpolitik of technology, which is the cell phone. And I like that. I don't know it, that it's being widely done. Um, maybe it's just being done among my well, friends because we're all so classy. <laughs> I guess it's just that's the nature of tradition. We don't, you know... It, Tradition, it takes a while. It's not like it doesn't become a tradition after like two years of. Yeah, right. You're a rude right. person. Um, but also, you know, so many of those kind of things depend on who you're with and like what's the context and what are we doing at dinner? And like if grandma and I go to yes, lunch, yes, yes, we're yes. probably going to be browsing around on our phones while we sit there and eat fried chicken and then be like, hey, check this out. I'm on Instagram or, you know, I just check this. Oh, let's check the score of that or whatever. But if I'm sitting there and I'm talking to the three of you or I'm on a business dinner or something and we're talking about something very earnestly and it's a little more formal. Yeah, we're not, we're going to, you know, and I think that's where the traditions take definition. And that, and, and without, without the definition of traditions, there is no preserving of them. Right. Well, yes. And that's Butler's help do that. It's true. And sometime to reverse it, tradition instills a value of loving your neighbor, which is what culture is founded upon. Right. So that, and I feel like David and I had a conversation yesterday about when does a man open the car door for a woman? Right. Yes. Like a man, if a man is trained, a a young man, if a boy is trained to open doors for women, for a lady, 
that is going to form the way he thinks about women, even mm-hmm. if he uh-huh. doesn't understand it. The actual form mm-hmm. of the tradition then forms the soul. So the idea that people have to understand yeah, the moral imperative before they do a tradition, right? Participate in a tradition, I think is mm-hmm. flawed. It's, 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 it's a symbiotic relationship, right? And that's what totalitarianism, that's what communism, that's what tyranny of all kinds in the 20th century attacked. Tyrants instinctively know that if you want to get to the hearts of the people, you have to tear down the traditions, because the, the tradition Union. is formed on loving your neighbor. Christian, yeah. the Western culture, yeah. it, the Christian ethic is is formed on the idea of loving your neighbor. So a man may be a misogynist and open the door for a woman in his heart, but if he opens the door, it is still an act of grace towards that lady. That's right? why the Soviet mm-hmm. spies yes. moved into neighborhoods and they just made relationships with regular people. They weren't always like trying right. to infiltrate the FBI or like take out senators. Right. So I think that this book is getting to the disconnection between tradition and its soul, right? That's the space this book inhabits, but that's not the way it has to be. Hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah. Incidentally, when do you open a car door for a woman? It's a good question. Tim. I've never thought about the quandary of this before until David brought it up. Okay, I, I just have to tell a story as a way of indirectly answering the question. David. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> you have to put a metaphor in there, by the way. Yeah, I will, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> uh, I remember I, several years ago, I was living near Athens, Georgia, and I asked this woman out. And I knew that she was very sympathetic with feminism if she would she and she probably would have um called herself a feminist and so i'm i'm driving over to her apartment i'm gonna pick her up we're gonna go out to dinner and i'm like thinking to myself okay when the moment comes that you're walking down the stairs toward your car and you're either going to open the door for her as you would on every single date or you're not like what are you going to do and i was like i don't know what i'm going to do so go pick her up. We're walking down the stairs from her apartment. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, I knew what I would do. I had like a good solution. So we're getting near the car. And I said, (laughs) I said, does the man open the door for the woman? And she said, no, the woman gets her own door. I was like, great. So I went to my door and she went to her door and she wasn't, it was like, I said her, I gave her response with kind of like a tone. There was kind of like, a wink in her eye, like, nicely done. You handled mm-hmm. that pretty well, you know? So that was good. That was smooth. It worked, move, it worked really well. Yeah, it was a pro move. I felt very, I was happy with that. It's, it's funny because there's, you know, like any tradition, and I think one of the things that Stevens kind of is reconciling with throughout is there's in different moments, things, different things are demanded of you, right? Right. So at different times, he even recognizes I have to. I have to rush in here and distract someone from something, or I have to rush out. I have to leave at this moment very quietly. And so like each moment, part of being having the dignity and being a good butler is recognizing what the moment calls for. And that seems to be one of the things that defines 
traditions as they evolve or our understanding of traditions. So for example, with the holding the door thing, I mean, it's kind of funny that we came around to this, but I was thinking there's, if I'm walking into a coffee shop and I'm going in by myself and two or three women walk in, you know, come up behind me, do I take the door and do I open it and stand and let them walk past me? Right. Do I open it, walk in and then just kind of reach out and hold the door behind me? Like you don't want to be patronizing, but you also want to do the right thing. And then do I, do I figure out this is what I think the right thing is? And I just do the right thing because I think that's what the right thing is to do. Or do I say, this is most likely what like, is it different if they're 23 or if they're 70? Yeah. Right. And then, so for example, with the car door thing, if like, I might hold the door for my wife, but does that mean anytime I'm in a car with a woman, I hold the door for that woman too. You know, there's all these different factors and it takes, you know, once you lose track of how to talk about these things, like once you lose track about of the norms themselves, the exceptions are impossible to navigate. Right. Because there is no, there's no, there's no baseline norm where the exception can deviate from and and have still have some kind of order. And there's also yeah. no way of having a discussion about it where it, they can be actually resolved in a way that people are going to understand. Right. Or be able to act on more importantly. Right. Right. Which I think in, is what this, I mean, this novel inhabits that space in the sense that there, there never used to be a quandary about that. There never used to be a question mark about that. About holding doors? Yeah. Or about how <laughs> a, a variety man, of different how a man interacts publicly right. yeah. with ladies. Right. And right. it was it was known. It was just taught as a matter of course. And of course, of course, that came to be that people did the form without the heart. I understand the argument of that, but Mm -hmm. that, that those question marks that come with, what does it mean to love thy neighbor in a society that has, that is coming to reject the forms of it, right? It's just as long as you love your neighbor in your heart, you can do <laughs> hold the door for her or not, whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. And now, now we're at the now we're at the point that to go on a date, you have to ask, mm-hmm. right? Ask someone. I mean, it's generally frowned upon to just take someone away on a date, right? You're supposed or to that ask. That them. might be an insult. <laughs> like, well, yeah, that's not what I meant. To ask about the door, just to be clear. But the real, Tim just took her with with right. him. Yes, I'm like, he didn't coming, We're going to get pizza. Let's go. <laughs> I don't think that's a date. But that is, I mean, yeah. So anyway, that that is a very different culture than the one that's described here in this novel and that he's trying to figure out, you know, in which the silver matters, right? The appearance yeah. of the silver at dinner is, there's there's a host of problems inherent within that, but people knew what was expected of them and people like- and what um, And what does it represent? Yeah, exactly. Tim, you're going to say something. I, I think, I think like the present moment that we live in, 2018, there's so much, so much rapid change. I mean, it's it's breathtaking and almost breakneck how rapid our world is changing. And I don't think someone might say, well, the world has always felt like that for people that have, you know. And I don't think that's true. I don't think, I mean, to use the like kind of classic trope, I don't think the medieval farmer felt like, boy, the world is changing at breakneck speed. I think maybe 
late renaissance in Europe. It probably felt like it was changing at a breakneck, breakneck speed, and it probably was compared to the pace of life before. All that is a long caveat to say um, our world is changing very, very, very quickly. And I, it, I kind of hold out the hope, and you might charge me with um, being a naive, what's the thing they call Darlington? Naive and well-intentioned. Amateur, but I, I yes. hold out the hope, <laughs> in the amateurish, this well, might be very amateurish. That one, one of those things might be true. We, it is easy to tell a story of decay in which we are losing the inheritance of what we have. And I worry about that. But I also sometimes think we are no, human beings are norm makers. Mm-hmm. We constantly are seeking ways in which we can traffic in the world, mm. preserve some sort of integrity. Mm-hmm. And the trouble with being with norms is that you cannot do them alone. It's necessarily a social activity and it's a social activity that requires some sort of trust. Like pitching a baseball requires paying, playing catch with um, someone requires that both you throw and that you also receive a throw. And I think that that's the nature of norms is that it's never just one-sided if i in the story of me going on the date there has to be this kind of like reciprocal agreement about both the action and the meaning of the action of holding the car door and i in my more optimistic moments i think we're just in this kind of state of almost extreme flux but norms will be reestablished. I hope norms will be reestablished once we kind of get used to having an iPhone in our pocket everywhere we go, having the internet available wherever we go. I mean, well, in college, those things were just not true for me. And that's a relatively short amount of, so it's a relatively short amount of time that we've been with these things and they have, they have affected every single aspect of the world that we inhabit. And so, of course, it's going to take time for sort of habits and traditions to kind of reemerge. But I think human nature is bent toward the establishment of those sorts of social norms. And, and yeah, I'll say, I'll say social norms. I'm not going to go so far as to say tradition, but I'll say social norms. Yeah, so <laughs> I thought Heidi was going to say something for a second, so I was letting her, um, and then she shook her head at me. I'm not touching it. Um, <laughs> no, come on, Heidi, come on. I don't, she didn't I actually like say that. I, be, like, I feel like we like. I probably I have a I feeling shook that my our head audience. Because I think David has something to say. Well, I was, <laughs> I was just going to say that you mentioned the idea of like I th- you talk about norms. I think norms. I, th- I think one of the things that Stevens is dealing with here to keep this oriented toward the book a little bit is that yeah, how do you have conversations about what's right and what's wrong? How, his whole point is what is duty? What is dignity? And in order to define these things, you have to be able to talk about them. And so you have to be able to say, what are the norms that hold those conversations together that lead us towards a definition? So for example, this, this car door thing, 
you know, if, if you're, it's, there's a degree to which expectations, if you, if you can't have the conversation, there can be no expectation to be met or to fail. So then you didn't know what to do because there was no clear expectation of what this woman would expect or what any other woman would expect. Right. Um, I remember like even when I was first married or dating my wife, we, we would talk about those kind of things. And I was like, well, I, I feel like I've been, I have been formed to, um, avoid doing anything that could be construed as condescending. Right. Mm. So the conversation is such that you, you're the ultimate duty is to not offend somebody or something like that. And so in public or whatever, I mean, I, you know, you try to be as, you know, unobtrusive in how you do polite things for women now it's, it's you know and i don't mean i'm not saying that we shouldn't right you know i'm not i don't mean it maybe i should take that bit out there i don't mean no it no i'm not hearing that i'm not hearing that david yeah no i thought but so you know the, then what but once you have once there becomes an agreement in place either culturally or in a relationship it creates expectations that you're either meeting or not meeting right. but if there is no agreement if there is no yeah. discussion that can lead towards that agreement there is no way of meeting or not meeting it it becomes a free-for-all right. and it becomes you're you're offending this person, but you're not offending that person. And that's like an impossible road to navigate because you can never you can never know. We're talking in caricature about, you know, some very specific sort of things that are polite or not polite. But these extend into they talk into the silver and all that kind of stuff. But it also it, it extends into much larger scale things such as how you navigate realpolitik, right? Right. Which by the way, side note, I'm very intrigued that you use the word realpolitik to you associate that word with the American, mm-hmm. it's a German term yeah, that you're associated with an American who is like saying, you got to pay attention to what the Germans are doing. That's just That's a side true. note that I found interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you, David. And I think that this book asks the question and that's very, very relevant to a hierarchical society, which America has never been. Well, we claim not to be anyway. Right. Well, and I would stick by that because there's never been a, as, as you said to him, I think you're exactly right. We have humans do put themselves in hierarchical positions, whether they want to or not, they put themselves into something, right? So that the question is just, what is it? So, but America has never been a nation that claims to value hierarchy. We are a, I mean, we were formed, origins matter, right? We were formed from rebellion, um, claiming a higher moral ground, and we developed from there. And so whatever kind of hierarchical positions that we have created for ourselves, we still resist them even from within them, right? So, but- England's not like that. Or wasn't here. Yes. And in this book, the question for Mr. Steve, for everybody is, I mean, everybody accepts these societal limitations with the exception of Ms. Kenton, but only to a certain extent. So everyone's operating from within them. There's nobody here who really disrupts the social order. And it is the social order that erodes their humanity. So that is a very different question for the British than it is for the American. And that 
is to go back to the idea of social norms or tradition, small T or big T or whatever. The question is how formed are, is it good to be formed by them? Right? So is it good for Mr. Stevens to be, to identify himself with, I am a butler, right? I am a butler and not, I am not free. I am, I accept I feel that. like there's a song coming here. I'm a butler. I'm a butler. Keep going. A, Make, sing a song. Right. No, let's go. I need do some, to do that. Do for some me. freestyle here. <laughs> yeah. We need, it's like some, uh, who, who did the Pirates of Penzance? Uh, uh, yeah. Gilbert and Gilbert Sullivan. And, you, I yeah. feel like Gilbert and Sullivan song style song coming from you here. I'm a butler. I'm a butler. Go you, on. You don't feel that. Yeah. No, I, I, sense, <laughs> I sense it. <laughs> yeah. I am the, what is it? I am the very modern general. What's yeah, one? I am the very model. I am, I'm singing. Yeah, you, you did are. feel it. Yes. I felt it. It's coming. <laughs> that, that was that, nice, David. Yeah, but that's a good question from an Englishman. It's a different question from within the society than it is from without the society. Mm-hmm. So as Americans, we're going to look at that and cast a certain amount of judgment just by definition than somebody would from within. And it's really, it's interesting that Ishiguro comes from two different, you know, yes. he, he grew up in England, but as I mentioned, I think last week, you know, his parents were Japanese. They lived in, what was it? Nagasaki. Um, so, so his, so his Englishness was certainly informed by a Japanese-ness, mid-century, you know, yes. and mid-century even Japanese-ness, uh, Japanese-ness coming out of the war. Um, and so he's an outsider, but also an insider yeah, who's examining, the, who's examining the norms as they're fading, and the conversation is happening, right. and what, and that's a fascinating, it's a fascinating um, point that you're making there. Kind of an overlay. Yeah. yeah, Tim, we should wrap this up. So we've been going for like an hour and a half. <clears throat> we just got started. Like- <laughs> I know we just got started. Yeah. I mean, I can just leave. You guys can keep talking. Um, do you have that's a weird thing to say <laughs> <laughs> we need you david um tim do you have any, anything you want to add any final thoughts you want to i mean we kind of got a little far afield in the book but i think it's real i think it's absolutely related yeah i do too no as soon as we end the call i'll be like oh man i wish we could have addressed this but we've got at least a few more what like three more podcasts on this it- so and uh, I have more to Facebook. Add. That's right. Always. This is kind of a bottomless book, which again, we've talked about whether or not every book is bottomless, but this one keeps going. I think that's what the definition of bottomless is. Right. Yes. So keeps going. Stating the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to add anything? Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wanted to tie in, a, I think, a significant conversation. Just, I don't don't need to go deep on this, but it is a supporting point when uh, the Wakefields are visiting Mr. Faraday and um, Mrs. Wakefield uses the phrase. And this book, I I think every time you see repeated phrases, it's important to pay attention to them. Um, That's probably true in every book, but specifically he uses in such an ironic book. He specifically uses them here um, that when she talks about the mock period pieces, I find I found that I think is very relevant to our conversation. The point yeah, that she's making yeah, yeah. as she walks around the house is, yeah. is any of this real, right? Mm. And is there an American 
couple living in England and she has <laughs> absorbed yeah. all the things about what it means to be really British, right? And yeah. I'm doing air quotes. So that she's walking around this house saying, oh, is that arch really 17th century yeah. or is it a yeah, mock yeah, yeah. period piece? Yeah. Are you a yeah. real butler? Did you really work for Lord Darlington? Right, because this, the Americans have an obsession with the old things that the British have. And, but they want them to be genuine or else they're not really British. Like whether it was built in to your, this is to your point, Tim, whether it was built in the 1900s or the 1700s, it was built in Britain, right? So it's really British, but to her, it's not unless it's old. Yeah. And he's not a real butler. Stevens isn't a real butler unless he worked for a British master, right? So, uh, unless he came with the house. Yeah. 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 Like he, like, she needs the certificate. Yeah, exactly. So that uh, kind of imposition of the American mindset, but still the Americans have this longing for it to be something old and something traditional. So I, I think that's particularly relevant to the conversation. So, and I wish, just as a last thought, I wish that we could have talked about that conversation that he had with Mr. Faraday, that Stevens had with Mr. Faraday when. Um, I can't tell if he's angry at him or which he, conversation. I went on the next page on page 124. Whether Faraday's angry with him. Yeah. No, whether Stevens is when the, when Faraday, uh, when Mr. Faraday confronts him and says, why didn't you tell her that you were, you did work for Lord Darlington. Oh, and then Mr. Stevens responses are, I'm very sorry, sir. It's most regrettable, sir. <laughs> so I just wonder what in. the tone was of that. I haven't mm-hmm. seen it in the film yet. But. I do think one of, I, one of the things I like about Ishiguro is he doesn't always give that away. Yeah, like There's a, a degree of imagination and interpretation that you're allowed to put into it. So Tim and I could have some fun staging that, right? We always talk about how do yeah, you... Yeah, right. That's what I was going right. to ask. How would you play that? So anyway, that maybe our, our listeners can think about what the tone of that conversation was. Well, you know, you could have just brought it up. Well, I know, but I got excited about, you know, tradition and all kinds. Of, I got, I, this was great. Tim, you started that tradition conversation there. Uh, so we can blame you, but also did that go in a different direction than what you were trying to say? No, no, it didn't. I, I feel like the, um, like I'm a little bit at odds with, uh, I but I imagine the Circe audience probably thinks I may be wrong. Um, so I, I'm going to want to uh, talk more about it, but that's just kind of like this instinct to sort of plead my case. It's not that um, we've neglected anything like vitally important. Well, to talk about the book is to talk about that. That's that a good is, point. That is the question of the book. It is. Yeah. It, it, it's it's a story that accesses that question, from which yeah. there are a multitude of perspectives. Yeah. Right. Right. So we'll we'll carry on. Dot dot dot. Yeah. Dot dot dot. All right. Well, with that, I guess we're done. <laughs> Just want to remind you, if you are in the market for a. Uh, College entrance exam, is that what they're called? That's what they're mm-hmm. called, right? College entrance exam. Then make sure you check out CLT. That's cltexam.com. It's a great alternative to the SAT and the ACT. Um, so a lot of colleges out there are making that available to you. Um, Tim, Heidi, anything you want to plug? Anything you got going on? 
I teach at a classical school. I just do a little a speech class in Seattle. And I'm such a believer in the CLT that I, with no bidding from the CLT, am like pushing it at the high school where I teach. Because I just, oh, I'm nice. like such a believer. Yeah. So you want to push our sponsor. Perfect. Perfect. It's great. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. Well, with that, uh, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Happy reading. Mm-hmm.